and uh, and that's something in terms of my personal values that, that it's very important to me that you know to the extent that you can make that world bigger for other people and that they can take more risks and and have the rewards um, what a better gift to provide welcome to your next big project is you a podcast based around the theme of time time to be able to press pause on life time to reevaluate what's important time to reminisce about where you've come from what you've learned and what you've accomplished time to revisit your goals dreams and vision and time to remember the people in your life that's it my friends if you've got time fasten your seatbelt and listen in as we discuss opportunities for the next 5 to 25 years of your life and remember your next big project is you. Welcome to our podcast. Your next big project is you. What a treat for me today. It's uh, rare to uh, look at my Rolodex or go back four decades, but uh, I have the pleasure to have, uh, should I say an old friend, a uh, very good friend, a very valued friend, Kevin Corker, and joining me today. Uh, Kevin, thanks for being a part of the podcast. Really great to uh, hear your voice today. Well, thrilled to be here, Leo. Always. Yeah. You know, when I when I think of you, I keep remembering back uh, our feet in pools and different trips that we both earned many, many years ago in our Xerox learning skills days, learning, Xerox learning systems days that eventually became known as Learning International while we were both there. We were supposed to be running the company, buddy. Uh, back in our mid late twenties, that was the that was the dream. Uh, tell me more and tell us more about the journey that's taken place from those mid late twenties to where you are today. You know, it, uh, I went to school, both undergraduate and graduate uh, in labor relations, because I wanted to be in the people side of business. And uh, I graduated from uh, Wisconsin in grad school and went to work for Miller Brewing Company and working for the VP of personnel and. Uh, I was, after studying this for six years, I was like, my God, you know, I got there and we were posted on a special assignment to go out to one of the breweries and try to improve the productivity of, of the people who were making a lot of money in these breweries. It was just outside of Syracuse. And um, uh, we went back and we presented to the executive team, this elaborate job sharing and you know, how to motivate people and teaming and whatever. And uh, the VP of marketing said, well, you know, we can sell the beer if you can make it. And the VP of sales said, you know, we're at allocation now. I don't care. Just, you know, make more beer. And the head of operations said, you know, he goes, these are fancy ideas from MBAs. And uh, why don't we just just fire more people and, uh, <clears throat> and just, you know, find new people because there's 10,000 people want to work for this, this company and this brand new brewery in upstate New York. And I went back and I was so disillusioned. But boy, did I learn an important thing. You know, if you don't sell it, or make it, you are just staff. And it was just an awareness of, of, of something that was so critical because I had actually been selling all my life, but never looked at it that way, never looked at it as a career. One of my mentors at this company was former P&G. He said, you know, if you're gonna embrace the world of sales and marketing, you have got to get out of personnel and HR. So I went to work through his direction at Procter & Gamble and worked on the institutional side of P&G. 
and uh, you know, learned is like another MBA in selling. You know, the certain discipline that Proctor brings to the sales and marketing process, and it was fascinating to be a part of that, and then to be promoted a couple times. And uh, when you get promoted to P and G, uh, everybody in the world comes after you. You know, and I had people from Frito Lay and from Soda Pops and everything else. And even though you're we in the institutional division, when you get that type of professional growth, everybody wants you. And so I said, yeah, I really need to think hard about what I'm going to do with this, because, uh, you know, they're, they're, it just seemed like an important journey or junction at that point. And I knew that I wasn't going to build a career selling soap and cleaning products to institutions and whatever. I knew that, but um, I knew that the P&G chip was going to be important. And that's when one of my other mentors said, you know, there's this little company called Xerox Learning Systems and nothing to do with copiers, but it's a sales and management training company. And uh, I started the conversation with them before I was promoted to the West Coast with P&G. And that conversation continued. And six months later, I joined. And, you know, those of us who were there at that time, you included, it was a, a magical time in the 80s and uh, an interesting time to be with this company at the time was the world's leading sales and management training company. And I always felt amazingly blessed that for 18 years, I couldn't wait to get up and go to work because we were talking with people, executive teams, heads of sales, heads of marketing um, about you know, how they move decisions, how people make decisions, how you can influence decisions and provide the skills and the insights to other, tr other salespeople um, that can help them to be successful. And the whole perspective of human behavior and how people lead and how people make decisions, all of that to me was just so interesting and fascinating, both just in terms of you know what I did with my career, but also um, helping people to achieve that level of performance. And so for the 18 years we were there, you know, my I started as a sales rep. My last position was VP of Sales and Marketing. Um, just felt so blessed to be a part of something that was so motivating and uh, exciting in terms of working with these companies. And I was in San Francisco and in Boston, eventually at headquarters in Stanford. And then. Uh, the company had gone through a series of acquisitions. The parent company had purchased other training companies. They're in the process of merging these companies. And we looked at it as an opportunity uh, to start our own thing. And so in 97, three of us spun off and started our own company. And we focused more on sales performance, bigger issues above, above mm. sales training, sales skills. And it was just a fluke that um, our efforts to build a consulting business kind of aligned with the introduction of CRM technology, customer management software. And it was all the vogue at the end of 90s and everyone was moving to you know, PeopleSoft and Siebel and uh, Microsoft and others. And uh, we started working with organizations who were preparing to bring in this technology. And uh, we found that by helping the executive teams get aligned around how they go to market and making sure all parts of the organization was aligned in a certain direction, that when that alignment was achieved, it was easier to bring on this type of technology. And the adoption was much higher when you had really defined your sales and marketing processes and showed how the technology helped, not just played the role of big brother in the sales process. So we got the attention of a lot of different software companies. We were kind of agnostic. We didn't care who you use, but use us at the beginning. And uh, got the attention of one company that really shared a lot of our business values, Onyx Software. And one thing led to another, and we were acquired in 2000. And uh, part of that meant that I would leave Stanford, Connecticut and head to the parent company to become chief marketing officer. And I had a two-year contract. I stayed for three. And uh, when it was done and I was living in Seattle, I was ready for something else. And so I moved to Palm Springs and then 
had this dilemma of, you know, now what to do with the rest of my life. And we did well on the acquisition. So I had the flexibility to take some time and think about it. And uh, there were kind of four mantras that, uh, that came out of that. One was I wanted to figure out a way to travel for free with fun people. Um, I had done a lot of work in hospitality and hospital or in hotels and did uh, in the cruise business and knew a lot of people in those businesses and was fascinated again by how you create a unique experience, um, sometimes at le levels of luxury um, for, for guests, whether they're in your hotel or on your ships. So I had a lot of discussion interest in that. That was one thing. I wanted to do something politically to support where I lived in Southern California. I wanted to um, join some boards and to kind of give back and also see if I could also uh, do some work that could be related to television or entertainment. So I was kind of surrounded by a lot of people in that. And that led to the development of Artful Travelers. Um, Artful Travelers was built to kind of look at ways that organizations could use travel or travel experiences to develop a stronger relationship with their members or their guests. So working with cruise lines uh, was one thing, looking at people who wanted to travel, but also we looked at and we helped organizations that tried to develop stronger connections with members like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. How could they add more value to medium and small business owners and what could they do to make a stronger connection and build loyalty around their membership? We also done a lot of work in public broadcasting and had worked on a big project for PBS, building a program that would train development officers in stations to ask for money to raise money. And that got us deep into the understanding of public broadcasting and what was required to be successful in that business and went to our eventual partner, Region 7 Seas, and said, you know, how about if we create unique onboard experiences for your guests um, using folks who are filmmakers, on-air personalities, and others from PBS and NPR. So bringing talent from public broadcasting on board. And uh, our partners at Region 7 Seas, they said yes. Um, it took PBS a little bit longer to say yes. They didn't understand it at first. But it launched what became a 20-year partnership between us, um, NPR, PBS, and Regent, where we bring really interesting folks from all different worlds of their professions, folks that are kind of the very top of their game, whether they're filmmakers or they're political analysts or they're reporters or filmmakers or writers, whatever, authors. And we create these unique experiences on board all over the world with Regent. And... Uh, 20 years later and 45 cruises later, um, much bigger than I ever expected, uh, we're the highest rated uh, cruises on Regent. And, uh, but most importantly, I have this Rolodex that has come out of this experience of people who you know, probably could afford some of these luxury cruises, but would never necessarily spend their own money, but they come on and speakers with us and we all become good friends. And uh, they have friends that have become speakers and prospects for us to feature part of our edutainment commitment to region. And it's been a blast. And we've met the most interesting people and we've been all over the world. And I think we've added a level of, of uh, richness to this travel experience. And uh, again, blessed to be working with partners like Region 7 Seas and you know, Six Star Luxury Cruise Line. So, you know, parallel to that, we also, I also wanted to dabble more in sales consulting work. I was good at that and enjoyed that and have worked with all sorts of organizations on you know, getting executive teams aligned around their sales and marketing goals, 
um, working with sales organizations on their processes and you know some of their technology as well. Um, and they've had a lot of fun continuing to work with sales and marketing teams. I love to not only do executive coaching, but to work with the teams of, that many of my executives are working with and help the teams to be more effective. So it's been kind of a portfolio of experiences and businesses, which is one of the things I decided I wanted to do when I moved to Palm Springs, like do a lot of things and be involved a lot of different ways. And many times, some of them overlap. You know, some of the people I meet in business, you know, are wonderful speakers on cruises. And uh, I just, it's, I think it's always fun to be close to the sales game, to understand, wow. and to be add value with all of that. So that's been the journey so far. And uh, well, I, I do what I want to do. Great. I don't even know where to start to, to relive some of this. This is the same guy from Auburn, New York, right? That uh, <laughs> that grew up in a in a biggest employer was probably a local prison, wasn't it? Back then, it was. You know, my father was a prison guard. My father was a prison guard, right? From there to Lemoyne College, was it? To Wisconsin, to I'm thinking of from Boston and Seattle and San Francisco and Palm Springs, and how many countries have you now been to as well through your travels? You know, it's funny, uh, people ask me that a lot, and I've never really taken the time to do it, uh, to really count the number of countries. But um, I can tell you that, you know, but for Antarctica, which I'll probably do next year, um, we've been on every continent and uh, every major city, certainly every every major port. And, uh, you know, the, the gift of travel, you know, really opens up your mind around what the world is really like. Um, it does change your perspective when we have firsthand experience of visiting some places in part, different parts of the world. Um, it's it's an amazing gift. And I always encourage people to, you know, while you can and while you have your health and while you're able to move, you know, that now is the time to do it. And I remember early on when we did work, consulting work, and my very first client was Royal Biking Line way back in the 80s in San Francisco you know, being invited to come on their ships and to experience what was defined by that company as luxury at the time. Um, and just seeing people who were older, who were accomplished, who had the, who had the means and had, had successful careers, but didn't have their health. And I just remember it was such an imprint on me to say, you must do it now while you can. You, obviously, we were all doing everything to maintain our health, but yeah. uh, it was it was important. And so I look back on, I think, my career number is close to about 135 cruises right now. That number I do know. And uh, started again when I was consulting with these cruise lines early on with these hotels. But uh, I think the gift of travel and giving that perspective, that worldly perspective, uh, yeah. is such a, such a treasure. Such a treasure. Yeah, we talk about perspective, as you remember in our program, in terms of uh, even a greater appreciation that travel gives you in terms of uh, some of the extraordinary places around the globe, uh, the extraordinary people that have had an impact uh, globally on, on, on societies and the, the contributions to people. Was there a trip in particular of, with 40 plus cruises that you've been on? Is there something when you think back to says, Leo, this one I went on maybe tops some of the other ones or is in the top three, which what, what, what that might be? Well, there, there, there is one area of the world. Um, people always say, yeah, what's your favorite cruise? What's your favorite spot? Uh, there's an area of the world that to me is, it was just fascinating and continues to be one of the most interesting ones. And I have a story connected to that. And that's the Middle East, going to Israel for the first time and visiting the Middle East and going to Jordan and, and Egypt and everything around the Middle East. At the time, um, one of 
our favorite, favorite people from PBS was Gwen Eiffel. And Gwen, you know, came, to, was in the New York Times, was at NBC, came to PBS and she was in charge of Washington Week. And then she joined with Judy Woodruff as the first two female um, anchors for the PBS NewsHour. And we invited Gwen to come to one of our cruises. I think it was in Alaska. And at the time she was like, oh, you know, I'm very busy. I can't do this, you know, maybe three days. She walked on and she's like, wait a minute. You know, I think I could stick around for more than this. And she wound up doing eight cruises with us before she died, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. But there was one cruise with her, which was so interesting. We were debating, like, where would she like to go next? And we had an opportunity to do one of our programs and uh, an itinerary that included Israel. And I told her, I said, you can't be the anchor of the news hour and not have seen this part of the world because it's so much a part of news for a thousand different reasons. And so she came, she came with us on this and she lectured throughout the, the voyage and we had a great time with it. But, you know, when you, when you go and you visit the Middle East and specifically when you go and see Israel, you can't help but be moved by what you experience. And of course, you know, politically, you know, it'd be all over the map in terms of how you feel about the government and how they treat the Palestinians and all that other stuff. But you, when you see it, it's the size of New Jersey. And yet in terms of influence and impact politically around the world, you know, for lots of good and bad reasons, you know, um, it's a, it's a fascinating place. I mean, I'm raised Catholic, you're, you know, your, your catechism comes alive as you go through the Valley of Armageddon and you see this part of the world, but doing it with her was really special because I think I've done it probably seven or eight times now I've been to Israel and it just, it just challenges your thinking about politics, about religion, about world affairs, about the Holocaust, and in ways that uh, really surprised me, really surprised me. And, and I often say to people, you know, go there and have the experience. I, I know it'll change the way you think. One way or another, it'll change the way you think. And with Gwen, it was a wonderful opportunity to share with her. And, you know, because she had this responsibility as an anchor and, you know, west of it. And three weeks later, she calls me and she says, she was invited to a salon, kind of a fancy dinner deal um, at a gentleman's house who uh, owned a lot of magazines uh, based in Washington. And uh, she was placed next to, seating next to the Israeli ambassador to the oh, United wow. States. And, you know, and, and be able to talk about these issues, having been there and seen it. She said, you know, it was such a gift. It was such a gift. She never would have had the quality conversations that she had with him if she had not had that experience. And so, you know, that's one example of the opportunity that travel proposes. I mean, when you, when you go to Vietnam and you go to Saigon and you see everything that was there in terms of the war, it can't help but impact your feeling about that and that part of our history. Um, and you, when you go to Rome and you go to the Vatican and you see it and, you know, like you're, just have these, these impressions that just make you think differently and hopefully think broader. And, yeah. uh, so that part of the world has been most interesting. Sharing with Gwen was really special, one of my favorite memories. But uh, again, there have been so many opportunities to visit different parts of China, you know, early into China before a lot of it changed. Fascinating to see how that's grown now. Um, it's been a real gift. It's been a real Wow. Gift. You know, when, and when we had you as part of our uh, recent program, the sabbatical experience, and we were talking with other very successful Kevin Corcoran's, about their journeys, as well as how they're seeing the next five to 25 years. We didn't talk about a Gwen type of person, 
from a business contact that, that's had this attachment to your heart and soul from the time you spent with her and, and what you experienced from walking around the Middle East with her and things. Uh, you came from a big family, if I remembered right. And I remember we were talking about heroes. And, uh, so on the personal side, you always were mentioning your sister, Pat. Tell us more about your family and, and about Pat and the influences she had on your life. You know, I was, I'm the youngest of five in a big Irish family. And uh, I was born very late in my parents' life. So my older sisters are 26 and I don't know, 18 years older than I am. And uh, in an upstate New York, our world was like this big, this big. Yeah. And, you know, going to Syracuse, which was 35 miles away, was like going to a big city. So we just didn't have the opportunities to see the world, you know, coming from that kind of humble background. But my sister, Pat, who's my second sister, I have two sisters, two brothers. Um, when she graduated from college, she decided to go to the Peace Corps. And hmm. she joined the Peace Corps and she was placed in Turkey. and she taught English to Turkish kids and Turkish students. And then after two years, she returned to Rochester, New York, and she was hired in this city school district um, because 80 Turkish families were brought over from Turkey to work in Bonn. Bonn was the, the hat in the clothing company. It was headquartered in Rochester. Yeah. And they needed a teacher who could teach them. And so she did. And she set up the first English as a second language, ESSEL programs, um, in the school district in Rochester. And then at 31, she announces that uh, she's going to Texas and she'd come home with a big surprise. And she went to Texas, single, 31 years old, comes back with this eight-year-old Mexican-American kid and adopted her. Six months later, she adopted her brother. Uh, a year later, she went back and adopted two other kids that were not biologically connected. And at 32 or 33, she had four adopted kids as a single parent in Rochester, New York, and as a teacher. And she... Yeah, I'll never forget. She just had this intensity around helping these kids. Most of them had some learning challenges. And she just had this intensity that she was going to be their teacher as well as their parent. And uh, just remarkable, just remarkable. At 40 years old, she comes to a family picnic with some guy from Xerox who had never been married. She had never been married. They get married. She has two biological kids. And uh, you know, the kids have all done very, very well. But, you know, I really credit her with, um, with just you know showing us. She and my older sister, who went to college when nobody in our family ever went to college, my sister Jean, the two of them really did lay the path of what was possible. What was possible? Um, neither of my parents, you know, finished high school. They're depression kids. You know, they wound up getting their GEDs later. Uh, but five out of the five of us have degrees and. Um, have seen the world and had bigger experiences. And I think of these two women, you know, my oldest sister going to college when everybody said that was a waste of money and she became a teacher and my second sister goes to college and then she's in the Peace Corps and she adopts these kids. And, um, you know, they really did for me create a, a picture of a bigger world or at least the possibility wow. of a bigger world. And uh, the irony of ironies is that now, you know, I have like 35 nieces and nephews and, you know, one of my important roles with them is to make sure that their world is bigger. You know, that if, for me, if I wanted to work in entertainment, you know, the idea of going to New York for an internship or got a, can't even imagine Los Angeles was almost like beyond possible. But with my nieces and nephews, the pay it forward piece is basically saying it's all possible. And, you know, if you just need the direction, the funding, the coaching to make it happen, um, your world can be bigger. 
And I think that one of the things that we're all proud of, my siblings, the siblings and I, are that, you know, that next generation, you know, they have had jobs all over the place. They've traveled the world. And a lot of that is just taking what my sister did, especially my sister, Pat, and just making it possible and just yeah. showing all possible. Wow. And, uh, and that's something in terms of my personal values that, that it's very important to me that, you know, to the extent that you can make that world bigger for other people and that they can take more risks and, and have the rewards, um, what a better gift to provide. Kevin, look, you, you went from here, buddy. I mean, to, I, I can't even extend my arms far enough to the world that you've now experienced and seen and the impact that you're having on people. Um, one of the other things that stood out to me when you were in our program is uh, we were, you had mentioned about just your commitment to help a couple of universities and uh, some of the, the members of specific parts of the school that you would remember in terms of uh, your time and talent and treasure, you direct some of it uh, to an area of the schools that you have fond remembrances of and that shaped who you are today as well. Tell us about that decision. So when I was Lemoyne, I was an RA resident advisor for two years. And uh, I was really good at that. I mean, it, you look at it overall, the career thing in terms of coaching and and that, I mean, the skill set to be a good resident advisor is very similar to, to sales or a sales coach, but um, I liked it. I liked it. I got a lot of uh, positive reinforcement for helping and kind of guiding freshmen and sophomores. And when I was looking at graduate schools, I looked at law schools and I looked at business schools. And um, one of the criteria I had was wherever I wound up, I wanted to continue to work in residence halls and do that work as a dorm director. And uh, I got into uh, a variety of schools and uh, Wisconsin was one of those schools in Madison. And my former dean of students at uh, Lemoyne said to me right after graduation, he goes, are you looking for a dorm job? And I said, yeah, but I haven't heard. And uh, I got into the schools and got some fellowship money, whatever, for the academic side, but hadn't heard about this. And uh, so he said, well, a guy used to work with me at UVA has one job left and uh, if you want it, at Wisconsin, you need to fly out there tomorrow and interview. So I did. And I wound up getting the job. And I had this another amazing two-year experience while I was in grad school, um, you know, <clears throat> leading the undergrad experience in these dorms. And the second year I was there, we started this project called the University Seminar House. And it was basically this idea of trying to build a learning, um, a learning education environment beyond just housing. And they gave us one dorm we could work with. And we would bring in invite speakers. If, if a rock group was in town, they would come and they would talk to the kids. And we went down to Chicago once. We went to Hello Dolly and hung out with Carol Channing after, stuff like that. The idea was just to extend the learning experience beyond just what happens in the classroom. And at the time, you know, I had a hustle to try to get money to do this stuff. And, uh, and the school provided some funding because it's like a pilot project. And so when I, after I graduated and started having some success, um, I would write originally small checks and then larger checks, um, earmarked specifically to housing or student affairs. Oh, okay. And I did this at Lemoyne and also did it in Wisconsin. And you know, now the seed that that program planted in the late seventies, now I think there's 14, they call them learning communities in Wisconsin. And uh, there's programs also uh, in my undergrad Lemoyne College that have been supported by this as well. And, and it's funny because you know most people will give to the business school or to, whatever 
you know, major they were in or just give to the general fund. But I've always earmarked whatever these funds are to housing and the housing or the student <laughs> program. And, uh, uh, but now it's fun to see how that has grown. And, and I always encourage when friends of mine have kids or grandkids who are heading to, to schools, um, to college to say, to look for these programs, because especially to school, the size of Wisconsin, 44,000 kids, you know, here's an opportunity for you to go in as freshman, sophomore, and the program that I started, it's called the Chadbourne Project, um, to have a very unique experience, kind of a small school experience with the resources of a large university. And, uh, and it's just funny how, you know, a seed of a little idea and some funding uh, for a year has turned into this. And, and I think it's great. And I encourage kids yeah. and parents to look at these types of programs to really enrich their college experience overall. Well, Kev, you mentioned in our program, uh, we were having some fun thinking of epitaphs and things. And you said uh, you you would hope that yours would read as a wonderful journey shared by many. Where's, where's the journey taking you? What did, you know, to end this today, what's the vision for Kevin Corcoran? And my gosh, you've impacted so many people, so many positive contributions. You've got such a lens uh, to a perspective from all your travels, the places that you've been, the people that you've met, uh, the influences from art and history and politics and food and wine and entertainment coming together. Where, where's the journey taking you, my friend? Let's end there. Well, I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting because uh, I want I knew at some point I wanted to give back more to my local community, and so COVID, um, kind of the irony and maybe the gift from that whole experience was it allowed me to not travel for two years and really focus on some important things to me and my community. So I'm on boys on the board of the Boys and Girls Club, which is a big deal here in Palm Springs. Um, the Plaza Theater, which is an old theater, which we are raising money to renovate. It's going to become a great asset for the city. Um, that's working well. Um, I've had a chance to dabble in politics. I'm on the um, vice chair of the airport commission, which is a big deal in Palm Springs. So um, without, you know, having the, I don't know if you'd call it the hassle of elective audience, uh, uh, being an elective official, um, I really have enjoyed, you know, going deep into the community and doing and kind of leveraging some skills that are that helpful to those organizations. So I'll continue to support that. Um, also, probably probably looking for other consulting opportunities that uh, will go kind of extend an, an executive coaching practice that I have now. So yeah. I'm looking at that. And uh, again, we're really, really good at creating unique life experiences through travel. Um, and I have this Rolodex that I'm sitting on of people who really want to go out and to share their expertise with others. So uh, one of the other things we're working on is building an ideas festival for Palm Springs. So what we usually do on cruise ships, we may do here and similar to some famous ones in Aspen and other places. Um, we're looking to start that in Palm Springs and make that be an oh. annual or semi-annual event. We bring fall leaders from all over the world into Palm Springs and to share their expertise, very similar to what we do on the ships with Artful Travelers. So. Uh, those are some of the things, some of the irons of the fire. And uh, wow. I think 23 is going to be an interesting year to define or really to put meat on the bones of some of those ideas. Well, I, anybody connected to you better be in shape uh, <laughs> to be able to keep up with the pacing. If I, if somebody said to me, uh, describe Kevin Corcoran in a few words, even just based on this last half an hour, I, I, the things uh, in the themes around excitement, of, of, of theme of venture, 
the issues around um, stewardship, uh, philanthropic interests that you have, uh, the fun, but coming down to really making a difference and in your life and the life of others. And I have seen that front and center uh, for a good period of time now, being privileged to have you as a member of our cohort to do this. So I, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a, a you know, very, very valued friend for four decades and growing now. Um, I'm glad that we got back together through some opportunities and uh, just look forward to sharing some of the enthusiasm, the passion that you have uh, with people listening into this. So thank you so much, Jeff, for being a part of this tonight. Well, thank you, Leo. It's been a, it's been a privilege to be working with you again. And uh, I love the sabbatical, sabbatical experience. And I look forward to applying all that in 23 and beyond. All right, buddy. Stay well. All right. Be well.